right, Jeremy, we're heading in the right direction. I'm not sure we've narrowed it down to perfect yet, but <laughs> that's some walk-up music. I don't know if I can top of that. Top that. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Um, special welcome to our visitors who are here for the first time, guys. It, it means a lot to us. Um, I want to let you know before we get going, if you have any questions about who we are, what we do, how we do it, where things are, we hang out after service. Uh, uh, my wife and I, Pastor Gabe, we'll be around for a couple hours at least after service, so we'll be more than happy to talk about it. Um, but you guys are the hearty ones. You came out. I was wondering this morning how many people would come out. For our people online, uh, I want to explain the hoodie. I don't normally dress quite this casually um, from here, but um, for those of you in Tanzania, for example, Pastor Paphras, it is minus 18 Celsius right now here in Colorado. That's why we're dressed like this. But you guys are here, right? This is how we do it in Colorado. We're not going to let a little bit of cold stop us. Um, so we are, um, we're going to continue in the series, Battle for the Blessing. We just started it. Last week was the first one. It's a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I know there are a few of you who were either traveling or, again, the f- people here for the first time who weren't here last week to kind of catch some of the groundwork. So I want to just hit for a minute um, kind of some of the basics to recap so that we're sort of all on the same page as we move forward. Um, but there's a lot today. Today's going to kind of be a chunky teaching. Hope you guys are okay. Settle in. It's warm in here. Um, so settle in and let's, let's get into our message. You know, in the last Last couple of years, we've been in we've been in the book of Mark. We went completely through the book of Mark, the book of James completely through. We did Ephesians completely through. Uh, obviously, then Easter and Advent series that we did. Um, I felt like the Lord was telling me it was time to kind of dig back in to our roots, kind of dig back into some of the the Old Testament teachings, some of the some of the prophecy, and some of the incredible things that God has done throughout time. And that's why we're going into Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, the reason we're teaching them both together is because they were most likely written by the same person, Ezra, the prophet Ezra. Uh, Ezra was a scribe and would have had the the knowledge and the materials and all those things to, to write those books. And he did it on Nehemiah's behalf. Also wrote, Ezra also wrote Chronicles, um, first and second Chronicles and was very prolific in what he did. Um, But this story, Ezra and Nehemiah, I think is so appropriate for us today. A lot of times when you see those two books taught together, it's taught in terms of leadership. We're going to teach a seminar on leadership. So these two guys are great examples of how to build a team and how to lead a team. And I think that's valid, but not entirely valid. I personally wouldn't choose that because in a good leadership book, I mean, who reads, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, only to find out at the end, the very last chapter of it says, and they probably won't follow you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's going to buy a book like that. So that's kind of what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, people receive this wonderful blessing. They are freed from captivity. The temple and the walls are rebuilt in their, in their home city. And things are going fabulously with all of these blessings. And they go, yeah, that's so great what God has done. Okay, what's next? And they just sort of like forget about everything that they just went through. But in that kind of human nature, 
We're always on to the next thing, which is one reason, and I don't, I don't do it as often as I should. My wife is wonderful at it, at journaling, because when you journal, you write down those wonderful things that God does for you, and you don't forget them. Because if you're anything like me, the minute I walk out that door and re-engage with the world, everything good that happened to me that day is just gone. And now I'm just dealing with whatever's in front of me. You journal them, you can look back, and you can see just how good and faithful God is. I think in some ways what we're teaching through in this series is, is a centuries-old journal in a way. We're looking back at how good and how faithful God has been and how good he is over and over again and time and time again. That's why we called the series, it's called The Battle for the Blessing. And the way that I looked at it is that we have to contend, fight for God's blessings every day. And I don't mean we need to fight to have him give us the blessings. We have to fight to keep them. We have to fight to hold on to them. Because God is, is generous. He is gracious. And the blessings that he pours out onto us is just outrageous sometimes how much he blesses us. But if we don't fight to hang on to it, there's always somebody around the corner that wants to steal that away from you. That's why we called it the battle for the blessing. So in this series, we're going to see, for example, Ezra and Nehemiah had crazy amounts of God's favor, supernatural favor on them, prophetic promises that we're going to talk about in a little bit, all these things lining up to give them this supernatural blessing of what they had. They had promises, they had provision, they had everything, but they still had to fight for it. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're like, I know God brought me into this blessing or God brought this blessing to me. Why is it so hard to hang on to it? It's because somebody wants to steal it away. But we're going to convince ourselves that maybe I got it wrong. Maybe this isn't a blessing from God if it's so hard. Blessings from God are supposed to be easy, right? That's not the way it works. Not every blessing looks exactly like we think, and they're certainly not easy to hold on to in most cases. These guys, Ezra and Nehemiah, even after seeing everything that God did, they still had to convince their people that God was worth their time. He's worth their worship. You'd think it'd be automatic after what they went through. So let me put it another way here. Have you ever been in a situation where you're fighting to hold on to a blessing? You just, you're just fighting to hold on to it. You know that God brought it to you. You know that you heard at the beginning, but somehow things aren't just lining up the way that it ought to be. And it could be your marriage. It could be a job. It could be your children. Because children are always easy, right? could be financial blessing, physical healing, emotional peace, or even your salvation in Jesus Christ. Incredible blessings that, that people pray for all the time. And once you receive that blessing, you think, okay, I've got it. I've, I've reached the mountaintop. I've got what I prayed for. And yet you have to contend for it. You have to fight to hang on to it. Because for every blessing from God, there's someone who wants to ruin it. Every time, every time. If he can't keep you from asking for it to begin with, he'll make you doubt your worthiness to receive it. So sometimes you reject that blessing just thinking you're not even worthy 
or it'll cause you to be dissatisfied immediately with the blessing you've been given. We'll see that pretty shortly here too. It'll cause you to doubt that it's real. Too good to be true, right? There's got to be some catch to it. He'll talk you into sabotaging it yourself. Ruining that blessing yourself before anybody else can. He'll tell you it won't last. He'll send someone to steal it. He'll talk you into just giving it up on your own. Trading it for something less than Or he might just simply make it a lot of work to hold on to. Paul told this to the elders in Ephesus about studying Scripture, which again is the basis we're going back to some Old Testament Scripture here. Paul said this, Acts 20, 26-27, Therefore I testify you, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all people, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, if you're new, I use the New American Standard version, NASB. Um, your version might say the whole counsel of God. That's a pretty common translation. But that word purpose or counsel in the Greek translates as boule. And boule means God's wisdom and decrees guaranteeing a purpose. That's what that word translates as. And in Paul's mind... The whole counsel of God wasn't Ephesians, Philippians, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It wasn't as good as those are. What Paul's talking about when he says the whole counsel of God, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. To them were the holy scriptures. All scripture, old and new, point directly to Jesus. And if you look hard enough, in any chapter, in any book, in any verse, you can find Jesus. Sometimes it's a little bit more obvious than others, but it's always there. Jesus himself said this in John 5, 39. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's those very scriptures that testify about me. And what Jesus is talking about at that point is what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the holy scriptures. And he's saying, all of it testifies about me. So if we're going to see Jesus in all of Scripture, it's so important to go back and look at it. We can't just ignore the Old Testament saying, oh, that was, anybody ever heard of it? Put it, that was angry God, and now we want happy, nice God in the New Testament. I don't even want to read all that stuff about angry God. But that's not what it is. It's all about God's goodness, and it all points to Jesus. And by studying it, understanding the history of God's people throughout time, now we can start to see Jesus everywhere. That's why we're doing this. It keeps us from repeating the same old mistakes. It gives us hope for the future when we inevitably repeat those same old mistakes. And it gives us peace in every circumstance. At least it should. If we understand, and I hope what we talk about today is going to help you to see that a little bit. I think the most important thing that studying Old Testament Scripture does is it focuses us on our continual need for a Savior. Throughout history, mankind has needed a Savior. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, 
No temptation has overtaken you except something that is common to mankind. And God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Anyone know many ways, but what the primary way of escape, the way of enduring temptations and trials is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Every time our access and our oneness with the Holy Spirit is only possible through Jesus Christ. No matter how civilized or technologically advanced we get as a society, human behavior is still rooted all the way back in the fall of mankind. And one of the biggest lies of the enemy today is that centuries-old ancient wisdom is not up to the task of dealing with the problems of today. That is a lie. Centuries-old ancient wisdom that comes from God is timeless. I was tempted, actually, at one point to call this series the third exodus because we're going to talk throughout this at the parallels between the exodus of the Hebrews from, from Egypt to the second exodus, if you will, when they were freed from Babylon and able to come back to Jerusalem. And then following the pattern of what happens to God's people, is there a third exodus situation coming in the future? We're going to talk about that kind of as we go through this and see what scripture says about it. Because there's a pattern in history that human beings continue to fall into over and over again. First, failure to understand our reliance on God, our desperate reliance on God. Then, number two, slowly slipping away from him and into idolatry and even a celebration of sinful lifestyles. Then, God warning his people that the end result of their sin is not good. And then the people ignoring these warnings. Again, these are patterns we see over and over again. Then, God allowing people to reap the result of their lifestyle choices. Up to and including enslavement and freedom of worship being taken away. Then a merciful God allowing and providing a route for restoration. Then they go into celebration of God's goodness, mercy, and provision, celebrating what he has done for them, and then slowly relegating the worship of God to the back shelf as the nation begins to prosper again. Then failure to understand their reliance on God for everything they have, and then the pattern continues. We see that over and over again. And if we forget that that's the way it works, it's so easy to see ourselves and go, oh, we're in this great prosperous place in our society right now. Everything is great until you realize we need to be careful because historically that is the next step before things don't go so well. We learn about these patterns and what caused them, not 
just as an interesting history lesson, which if you like history, it is, but to give us guidance, direction, and comfort when we find ourselves following when we find ourselves following our own human nature instead of Jesus Christ. That's why we study these things. Today we're going to take a minute. We're going to take a minute to look at an overview of the first exodus from Egypt. And if that's not enough, we're going to look at God's covenant promises to his people. Anybody know how many covenant promises there are? Some people say four, five, I've seen seven, 12, depends on if you count major or minor. If it comes from God, it's kind of all major, I would think. But for our purposes today, we're going to say there's five. Anybody looking at my Bible nerds, anybody know what the first covenant God made was? What, what is, what's it called? It's the Davidic covenant. We're going to get there in just a second. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that. So, God's five major covenants with his people and the Exodus. All in one message. You guys with me? We got until about four o'clock. You guys ready? <laughs> yeah, there's no football, right? So, yeah. all right. After we do that with our extra time, if we have it, we'll move towards... Um, the second exodus from captivity in Babylon. All that's ultimately going to lead to what the Bible points to as a possible outcome for us today if we don't understand what's happening in with Scripture. So this is a story about God's promises, His direction, His correction, and His restoration. That's what we're going to talk about. And it all culminates with the return of Jesus Christ to come back and claim his bride. And it's our job to be ready for that. And we're ready for that by following him and by understanding the history of what we've gone through to get us to this point. So we're going to look, so let's start right now. Let's look at this necessary backstory, if you will, before we really get into the meat of Ezra and Nehemiah of how this all began. This is a super abbreviated version, right? Okay. So again, God made a series of covenants. The first one, the Adamic covenant. This is from Genesis 3.17. I'll just read it to you. Then to Adam, he said, now there's a series of it from about 14 to 18, if you read Genesis 3. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. And so because of Adam's sin, a series of curses was given. Uh, A constant struggle between Satan and, and their descendants. Cursed soil, struggle to survive, painful childbirth. Um, and that death is the ultimate destiny of everything that is alive. Sounds all... Kind of negative, right? It is until you realize that another part of that covenant is what we call the Proto-Evangelium. I've talked about this before, so some of you may have known this. It means the first gospel. The first good news is Genesis 3.15. 
And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, her offspring will be wounded by Satan, but would ultimately win the battle. That's the first good news. That's the first glimpse that we have, first explicit glimpse that we have here of of Christ. So that's the Adamic covenant. We're going to just kind of brush stroke these to get to the later ones. Then the second one is Noah's covenant, Noahic, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Genesis 9-11. God says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be eliminated by the waters of a flood, nor shall there be a flood again to destroy the earth. This covenant is an important one because it, it, it's God's promise that humanity, even with all its flaws, is going to continue. It's kind of saying, we're, we're together in this for the long haul, so we better figure this out. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant, right? That gets taught on a lot. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it's found in a couple different places. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those that bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God promising Abraham a homeland for his descendants and that they are going to be forever a blessed and chosen people. Then we get to the Mosaic Covenant, which we're going to focus more on in a few minutes. That's kind of found in a number of places, Exodus um, 19 to 24 chapters. God establishes the law that will govern and protect them And maybe most importantly, set them apart. Set them apart as a special and chosen people. Different than everybody else has to. Harder to live that lifestyle than anybody else that they'll run across. But it sets them apart as special. This covenant is a little bit different than some of the other ones. This one's conditional. It's conditional. And they're carefully defined terms. If you do this, you will receive this. If you don't, this is the option. It's blessings and cursings that go back and forth. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 28, 29 if you want to study that. And we'll go back to this. Then there's the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up a descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Talking about Jesus there, right? God promises that a descendant of David would reign over Israel and that his kingdom would endure forever. Also includes a part in there that that ruler would be disciplined by men if necessary. Then the last of the five major covenants. Anybody know what that one is? I heard a rumble. The new covenant. The new one. Jeremiah prophesies about this. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. We could camp out there for a month and talk about that. But we're not. We're going to jump back. (coughs) 
since we're talking about the Exodus, we're going to go back and talk about the Mosaic Covenant. And trust me, this all lays a very important groundwork for what we're going to go into with Ezra and Nehemiah. So take a deep breath. Get your, make sure your pens are ready to go. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, were essentially nomadic people, okay? They kind of settled and went wherever the food supply took them, wherever there was work, wherever they could find uh, a, a good place to live. They needed food. They needed water. And at some point, Joseph, Jacob's son, has a dream, prophetic dream, where he's told that he's going to become a very powerful man, ruling over many, which sounds great until he makes the mistake of telling his brothers that. He tells his brothers, I'm going to rule over you someday, and they go, oh yeah, well, we're going to throw you in a hole right now, so give you time to think about that. So after a difficult, I told you, it's a Cliff's Notes version. After a difficult series of events, Joseph finds himself in Egypt. Miraculous, crazy events. Finds himself in Egypt with great favor and blessing of the Pharaoh. Great authority, and he is elevated to a position he never would have made without God putting him there. But God clearly does that. And then when a famine strikes... This is a famine throughout the whole land, including Egypt, but Egypt is rich enough, has enough stockpiles to where they can carry it. Many foreigners, Canaanites, people from all the places around flock to Egypt to find food and work. I want to take a little sidebar here and just point out, I see a lot of really good Christian brothers and sisters saying and posting things about immigrants that are not loving and that are not, they don't honor God. And if you have a problem with immigrants today, I'm not talking about politicians or the way it's handled or, or any, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the people. If you have a problem with that, you haven't paid much attention to what the Bible says. I'm not going to belabor that. But if that's your heart, I would just ask you to pray about it. Now, Joseph's family, again, Joseph's working in Egypt. He's doing great. But his family and a lot of their relatives are suffering from famine. They can't find work. They can't find food. And because of Joseph being where he is, they're actually able to settle in Egypt, to settle in in a whole region in Egypt through, it's nothing but God's miraculous favor on Abraham's family line. They prosper and they multiply. <laughs> Scripture tells us a short version, they may, they may prosper a little too much. They may multiply a little too much because when a new Pharaoh takes the throne, a new one that, that doesn't have the background uh, with Joseph and doesn't see the Israelites the same way, He sees this growing population within their borders as a huge threat. They're no longer welcome there. They are a threat. So they're mistreated, and ultimately they're put into slavery. That's how the Israelites end up, again, short version, end up in Egypt being enslaved. 
Now, here's where it gets really, God never forgets his covenant, never forgets his promise. And so everything that happens in the world eventually works around and is part of the promise and a part of God's plan, whether we see it or not. And so after about 430 years of, uh, of the people being in Egypt, being enslaved, being mistreated, being a second-class citizen, he raises up a leader that will lead his people out of captivity and into the promised land. Anybody know that leader's name? It's Moses. Raises up Moses. But here's a problem. Pharaoh's not going to give up his labor force, his cheap labor, um, so easily. So God tells Moses this. Exodus 7, verse 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh. This is after Pharaoh seeing all these horrible things that are coming upon them. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. As for you, you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. That's God's favor directly upon Moses to establish and do the things that God needs to happen. But then God does something very odd. Anybody ever have a question over that part, that phrase here where it says, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Anybody ever question that? It seems weird that God would say, well, I'm going to do all these things so that Pharaoh will fear me and will let you go. But before that, I'm going to harden his heart so he hates you even more. And so that he won't let you go until things get really bad. We all know about the plagues. But God makes a difficult situation even more difficult in order to accomplish what he needs to happen. And as a result of all these plagues, the Egyptians are thrilled to finally see them go. When the decision is made, let's let them go, they're thrilled to see him go, even voluntarily giving up their wealth to expedite their exodus. Let me read this for you. Exodus 12. Actually, I've got it on screen. Exodus 12, 35, 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have the request. Therefore, they plundered the Egyptians before finally sending out. And we're going to talk as we go through what a parallel that is to the second exodus from Babylon, where Babylon actually funds rebuilding the temple and gives them money to, to do their trip and protection. But right after, right after the exodus starts and the people are, are fleeing their pursuers, they institute the ordinance of Passover right away. Like, okay, we need... We're going to forget this. God says, we're going to, you guys are going to forget all that just happened, all those miraculous things that just happened. You're going to forget it as soon as you leave here. So what we're going to do is we're going to institute Passover so that you remember and that you never forget how God brought you out. Of course, they forget it all the time. But then, then God parts the Red Sea to allow their escape. He provides food for them in the form of manna which they quickly start grumbling about because it doesn't taste so good. 
but it keeps them alive. They start complaining about the bland food, about the desert that they're in, and start actually pining away for the good old days. Remember when we were slaves, but we at least had a good place to sleep and and food to eat? That's just like the enemy to trick us into thinking this new thing we have, just because it's not as easy as we'd hoped it was going to be, maybe I missed it and I ought to be back there. That's just what the enemy wants to do. And he does it to that, does it to us all the time, which is why we need to see these patterns and recognize them when they come up again and again and again. God meets Moses on Mount Sinai and gives them the law gives them all the ordinances really that they need to govern how they worship, how they live, how they interact with each other, how they interact with him. And they're instructed to build a dwelling place for God so that he can be with them all the time. They build the tabernacle, right? And since they're traveling through the desert, they're never in the same place for very long. They're not going to build a permanent structure. So what they build is... We call it the tabernacle. It's kind of a, a mobile home for God. Is that sacrilegious? I don't know. It's kind of a mobile home. Like, it's just, it just travels with them. And if we fast forward to the end of the story, Moses makes it right to the doorstep, right to the doorstep of the promised land, but doesn't make it in. Again, this isn't a whole series on the Exodus, so I won't go into details there, but he he appoints a leader named Joshua to take them forward from there, to take them into the promised land. Now, Joshua leads the Israelites against the the natives of that land, the Canaanites, and establishes the 12 tribal regions based on the different names. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But eventually, they take these tribal regions and they split them into two. North and south. Here's just a quick, quick, simple map. It is the kingdom of Israel to the north, which which is constituted the tribes uh, uh, Seshem, Jaffa, Belir, Jerash, Jericho, Jerusalem, all those cities down below in the kingdom of Judah. So all north, kingdom of Israel, all south, kingdom of Judah. You don't need to memorize where the tribal regions are. You don't need to memorize the cities. I just wanted to show you kind of how it's broken out because that'll be important to remember when we really dive into chapter one of Ezra next week. So this is a huge chunk of knowledge, right? Huge chunk of knowledge, but it's more than just head knowledge. I want you to take away something from this. And I think what we can take away is that God is faithful. God makes a covenant. He makes a promise. He will fulfill it whether we see the route that he's going to take, whether we can see it laid out and go, oh, I see where he's going with this, or we have no idea. God is faithful to to fulfill his promises, and he is sovereign. And what that means is that he'll use everything, everyone, anything to accomplish his purposes. You look at what's happening today. I talked about it just briefly last week. And I don't, if you're new here, I don't get into politics here. I have plenty of my own opinions. But when we started this church, God told me that the pulpit belonged to him. I'll talk politics with you all day, but not here. Okay? But I do want to say this. 
is that many people think if their team wins the elections that are coming up, things are going to be great. And if the other team wins the election, things are going to be terrible. I want to tell you, from God's perspective, it does not matter. From God's perspective, it does not matter. He's going to use anything, everyone, and everything to accomplish his purposes. The route might be different. Human free will always muddies the waters. But he's going to get us where he needs us to be. Our job is just to focus on Christ. A lot of people think of the Bible just as a series of do or don'ts. Do's and don'ts. Anybody ever heard it phrased like that? It's just do's and don'ts. I like to think of it more as a book that's just full of God's promises. Promises of things that he has done, things that he will do. According to Hugh Ross, Terry, if you're out there watching online, Hugh Ross is, is one of his favorites. He teaches on him all the time. But he's an expert in biblical prophecy. And according to Hugh Ross, there's approximately 2,500 prophetic promises in the Bible. Approximately. Now, it, that number goes up to like 7,000 if you include all the very minor ones. These are just the more identifiable major ones. 2,500 of them. And to date, about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. 2,500 in the Bible, about 2,000 have already been fulfilled with no errors, exactly as God promised. There's about 500 that are yet to happen. Do you think if 2,000 have already been fulfilled exactly as God promised, that we can have faith and confidence in that remaining 500? That he's going to be good and fulfill his promises? I think we can. Let me give you an example. We're going to wrap up the message now. We're, we're coming on the home stretch. We're doing, are we doing, oh, we're doing pretty good. Oh, I can relax. I can go slower. Yeah. Let me give you an example from next week's message. We're going to talk about Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. There's so much depth there and we're going to get more in depth into that next week. But this, what happened here is not only in the Bible, it is a verified historical fact that that happened. Bible talks about it extensively and outside historical sources talk about it extensively. Cyrus became king of Persia in 559 BC. Remember, if it's BC, the numbers work backwards. And 180 years, 180 years before Cyrus became king, a prophet named Isaiah said this. This is from Isaiah 44, verses 21 through 27. I won't put it on screen because it's kind of long, but just listen while I read it. The subheading here is God forgives and redeems. It says, remember these things, Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your wrongdoings like a thick cloud. 
and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break into a shout of jubilation, you mountains, forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows his glory. Verse 24, this is what the Lord says. He who is your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out all the earth alone, causing the omens of diviners to fail, making fools of fortune tellers, causing wise men to turn back and making their knowledge ridiculous, confirming the word of his servant and carrying out the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise her ruins again. I am the one who says to the depth of the sea, dry up, and I will make your rivers dry up. For reference, before I go into the next verse, 180 years ago, so again, 180 years before Cyrus, Isaiah said this, 180 years ago in our country was 1844. James K. Polk was U.S. president. We have a James K. Polk fan. All right. A Polkamaniac. I just made that up. Copyright. No. Probably won't sell many t-shirts. Who would think that in 1844 somebody could predict something that's happening today if it wasn't a prophetic word from God? And that's exactly what happened here. And this next verse is going to, the first time I read it, it blew my mind. It probably will you too. This is the next verse, continuing, verse 28, continuing what we just read. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will carry out all my desire. And he says of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Names him by name. And says, Cyrus is going to do my work. This prophecy, by the way, was given 20 years before anyone ever thought of invading Israel to begin with. So it's not like he said, oh, they're being invaded. Let me look forward in my, and try and guess who it's going to be. They weren't even under attack at that point. This is just one example of God's promises his prophetic promises being true. And the Jewish people relied on these promises for centuries to sustain them through, again, through thousands of years of attack and adversity. And they sustain them in the face of attack to this day. You look at what's going on over in Israel now, the battles that they're going through. They are looking at these scriptures, the holy scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, they're looking at them saying, we will be victorious. They have that promise to sustain them. And if you need help relying on God's goodness and faithfulness to encourage you through everything you're going on today, I promise you everybody in this room is going through something today. And we're very likely to think we're the only ones who have ever gone through that. 
Well, I know other people have had that problem, but not as seriously as I have. Look at the promises of God to sustain you through that. And the only way to let it sustain you and encourage you is to study it and understand it. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're going through this series. And I advise you to study his word for yourself and to know that his promises are for you. That is the only way that we can contend for the blessing that God gives us. Okay, That's the only way that we can battle for the blessing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy on a people that certainly don't deserve it. We receive your grace, we receive your blessing because you say so, not because of anything we did. And you sent your son Jesus for us to redeem us, to reconcile us to you and to regain all of those promises that left to ourselves we would have lost a long time ago. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you put your word out there for us to see and to study. And I pray right now that you speak to all of us, that your spirit speaks to all of us individually and shows us how you have been good and faithful in our lives because I know there are people in here who are thinking, God hasn't been that good to me. He hasn't been that faithful to me. Show us, Lord, where you have been good because we know it's there, but sometimes it's hard to see through the things that come at us every day. Father, let us live our lives to glorify you, to praise you. Let us praise you with our every breath and the things that we do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who you say we are and your love for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Guys, we're going to move into communion now. A couple things to know. We always have prayer team in the back of the sanctuary. If you need prayer for anything, look for somebody back there. Usually they'll have a lanyard on and they can pray with you about anything that you need. You're free to move about and do that now. We're going to take communion together. We do this every time we gather together. We take communion. And the way that we do it here is typically you would come to the middle aisles and come down. We have two stations. We have one on this side and one on this side. And up front we have wine and bread and gluten-free crackers. And what you do is you just dip in the wine and take it that way. In the back we have a table back there that is self-serve. If you prefer to serve yourself and there's juice that's available back there. Um, and I completely forgot to, Michael and Rhonda, would you mind serving for us? Okay. Um, I want to point out that you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to have gone through a class, anything. Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him every time that we gather together. There are no rules around it other than you call Jesus your Lord and Savior. And so if you can say that, then we invite you to take communion with us today. So during communion, again, you can move around. There's, there's prayer in the back, and the worship team is going to play on. Let's take this time to just celebrate how good and how faithful God has been and is going to continue to be. Amen? Thank you, guys.